Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Welcome to And I'm a little bit jittery for this episode of the podcast because I came down to the podcast studio that we have built in our home, and there was a copperhead snake on the floor, and there has been much running around and the attempt to get this thing out of here. Oh my gosh. I feel that I have come to infect Purgatorio itself and the snake right ahead of us in the Valley of Purgatorio. Anyway, that's all gone, but I may be a little frazzled for this episode as I record it, but that's all right. I'm frazzled most of the time. Anyway, we are toward the middle, let's say, of Canto Six of Purgatorio. Dante and Virgil have come along a bit, and Virgil has come in for quite a knocking. He has had to admit that the Aeneid was wrong about prayers for the dead, or at least the prayers in the Aeneid were of the wrong sort, which puts a real weird spin on Limbo. Well, we've got to go on from that then, from the last episode of this podcast. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it would really be good if you went back to at least the previous episode and caught up, or all the way back to the beginning of Purgatorio, if not clear to the back of Inferno. So many episodes behind us on our walk. We're taking off through lines 49 through 75 of Purgatorio Canto 6. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine. We're going to be talking about the medieval Florentine a bit in this episode. If you want to see this translation, you can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. Without any further ado, let's just read the passage. And I replied, My liege, let's go a little faster because I'm not as worn out as I was before. Look, the hill is now casting a shadow. We're going to keep going for the rest of the day, he responded, as far as we now are able. But the facts aren't in the form you think you know. Before you're finally up top, you'll see again the one that's hidden by this slope whose rays you don't interrupt at the moment. But Look at that soul over there, sitting all alone with his gaze turned toward us. That one will tell us about the quickest route. We came up to him. Oh, Lombard soul, how you bore yourself so upright and disdainful. In your eyes I could see such honor and caution. That one didn't speak a word to us, but let us approach simply watching us like a lion in its crouch. In any event, Virgil stepped up to him, begging that he tell us the best way up. To this request, he didn't utter a word. Instead, he asked about our country and what life we'd had there. My sweet guide had no sooner said Mantua than that shade, who'd seemed all pulled into himself, jumped up from his spot and cried out, Oh, Mantuan, I am Sordello from your own city. And they embraced each other. This is the natural break point in this Canto 6. From here on out, if you remember our read-through, we're going to hit the giant diatribe and invective against the Italian peninsula and then specifically against Florence after this greeting between these two Mantuan souls, Virgil and Sordello. Let's talk about who this is. We'll save that to the end of this episode. But in the meantime, let's talk about some of the interesting things that come up in this passage. There's not too 
much that is, uh, what do I want to say, naughty or thorny, you want to talk about Dante the Pilgrim's relationship with both Virgil and Beatrice because it plays out a little in this passage. We want to talk a little bit about what Virgil knows and doesn't know. And then we want to talk about that strange interruption from apparently the poet before we get to the actual question of Sordello and who this is. So starting at the top of the passage, and I replied, the pilgrim replied, my liege, let's go a little faster because I'm not as worn out as I was before. Look, the hill is now casting a shadow. Remember, Virgil had said, we've got to move on. And Virgil just said to Dante, hey, if you really want the answers to your questions about how prayers for the dead work, wait until you meet Beatrice on top of this mountain. And so Dante suddenly now seems in a rush. This is a good place for us to talk about Dante, the pilgrim's relationship with both Virgil and Beatrice. First of all, his relationship with Virgil is interesting because if you remember, Virgil has come in for some knocking, for some drubbing in the last passage. Virgil has had to say, well, the Aeneid wasn't quite right or I didn't have it quite right. And then Virgil gave this very garbled answer in which he seemed to lock God into temporality, none of which quite makes sense. And at the end of that, Virgil said, well, just save it all for Beatrice and let her answer your questions. And then we come out to the reply. I translated it, my liege. Let's go a little faster. And I translated it that way so that you'd really hear it. The word used here is signore. Perhaps a better translation is my lord. But remember, we're in a feudal society. So we're in a society of lords and vassals. And signore has a connotation of liege, of feudal relationships. This is interesting because if Virgil has just come in for a knocking, this is a quite obsequious, uh, what do I say, obsequious reference to Virgil from the pilgrim. The pilgrim seems to be putting himself in a lower place to Virgil. If, again, Virgil has just come in for a drubbing about the Aeneid, it's interesting that this is the first word back out again, signore, putting the pilgrim down below Virgil. So while Virgil may be knocked, he's still the pilgrim's liege in a feudal sense. But this also calls us to the pilgrim's increasing relationship with Beatrice. The mention of Beatrice has got Dante all hot and bothered. He's not as worn out as he was before. And he seems suddenly upset that this giant mountain, he can't even see the top of it, this giant mountain is starting to cast shadows. How long is it going to take to get up this mountain? That is the implied question. And we guess that because of Virgil's answer. Virgil says we're going to keep going for the rest of the day as far as we are now able, but the facts aren't in the form you think they are. And we should stop just a minute here, and I should just reference this idea of facts and form. This seems to be important to the canto as a whole, the interplay of content and the form it's in. We'll come back to this when we're farther down into the canto, and we've crossed over from the narrative part to the invective part. But form does does seem to play a dominant function in this canto, and lots of cantos, but in this one in particular. So with just a passing reference to that, let's go on. Before you're finally up top, Virgil says, you'll see again the one that's hidden by this slope. This is a very weird paraphrastic reference to the sun. The one that's hidden behind the slope is the sun, who's 
raise you don't interrupt at the moment. So Dante is not casting a shadow. This is a really interesting question to ask. How does Virgil know it's going to take more than one day to get up Mount Purgatory? Virgil can't have been here before. Is it that the pagan poets could see the truth? Or is it that once the pagan poets get to limbo, they suddenly know more about the road ahead across the universe? It's all very interesting that Virgil knows that they can't get up purgatory in one day, which is, in fact, going to be the truth of the matter. But how does Virgil know that? His knowing that lets us for sure know that even though Virgil has had to correct the Aeneid and give a garbled answer about temporality and condition and will and God, even though Virgil has had to correct his own Aeneid all the way as far back as Manto amongst the fortune tellers, even so, Virgil is still the guide. And it strikes me that the poet is signaling to us that no matter how much sardonic sarcasm Virgil may come under, he is still nonetheless the signore, the liege, the guide, the duca to use the common word in the Florentine, the guide through this world. So that Virgil knows this signals to us that he's still the leader. How he knows this is a huge question and one that the text seems to just, well, beg or skip over. The passage goes on, but look at that soul over there, Virgil says, sitting all alone. And you should know that the word used here is a rather affectionate word for soul. There's a diminutive on it and has a very affectionate tonality. This is setting us up, of course, for Virgil's meeting of a fellow Mantuan. Virgil doesn't know that at this point, and so you've got two ways to look at this. You can either say that Dante is preparing us for the meeting with Virgil, or you can say that Dante is mm, ham-handedly dealing with this, that he is not exactly as skillful as he often is here, and he's having Virgil almost show affection toward us all, whom Virgil wouldn't know. That's an interesting little problem in the text in terms of that little soul over there sitting all alone with his gaze turned toward us. That one will tell us about the quickest route. I don't know how Virgil knows that either. We came up to him, and then this is really what I want to focus on, these lines in 61 through 63. O Lombard soul, how you bore yourself so upright and disdainful. In your eyes I could see such honor and caution. This is a reference to the soul ahead of us, to Sordello, the poet that is sitting here all alone. However, we don't know that. When the phrase, O Lombard soul, comes up, we could think that the pilgrim and or the poet is, are, <laughs> is or are, referring to to Virgil, Virgil's a Lombard soul. In fact, only on rereading the poem would we actually be able to affix this 
to the soul sitting there. And once we reread the poem, we know that these lines, O Lombard soul, how you bore yourself so upright and disdainful, these lines can only be spoken by the poet not the pilgrim, because the pilgrim doesn't yet know that this soul sitting over here is from Lombardy. There's no way he could know. He doesn't know who this is yet. So the poet has jumped into the middle of the text. This strikes me as supremely important since the poet is going to take over the back half of Canto 6 in order to give the invective against the Italian peninsula and particularly Florence. There is an insertion of the poet here that is echoing forward into what's ahead in the canto. I'd like to take a break to let you know how you can support the podcast Walking with Dante. You can give it a rating or even write a review on most of the podcast platforms. Doing so helps this podcast stay present in the streaming services. If you'd like to do more, please consider donating to this work. I've chosen not to seek sponsors, have in fact turned down some sponsors, but paying for a hosting site, securing the streaming feed, buying the rights to the music and the sound effects, keeping the web domains, it all costs to help. There's a PayPal link. You can find it in the podcast player. You can find it on my website, markscarbro.com, and you can find it in the podcast notes for each episode, perhaps a dollar, a pound, or a euro per episode, or even 50 cents or half a quid. I'm happy to continue on my own with this passion project. Consider it a tip for your Dante-obsessed street busker. Now back to this episode. That one didn't speak a word to us, the passage says. So again, we know that the pilgrim couldn't know that this was a Lombard soul sitting there. But let us approach simply watching us like a lion in its crouch. We get this idea that there's a little bit of danger here. There's a little bit of fraught material here. What could be dangerous? Well, we're going to save that for future episodes on the podcast as we enter the invective in the back half of Canto Six. But there is a danger here. It is, let's just say for the moment, like a lion in its crouch. And remember lions? They were on that slope in Inferno 1. Well, at least one was on that slope in Inferno 1. So we've seen a lion as a blocking figure and as a figure of danger. And we hear that danger here, although Sordello is by far not a blocking figure. Although he could be, and this is what we're going to come back to. So let's just leave that, drop all that mess on the floor and walk on in the passage. In any event, Virgil stepped up to him, begging that he tell us the best way up. To this request, he didn't utter a word, this solitary soul. Instead, he asked about our country and what life we had there. Notice how removed he is from the pilgrim and Virgil. He is uninterested in in their questions. His questions take precedence. This tells us his nobility, his place in the hierarchy of a feudal society in which we've already seen Virgil identified as a liege lord. My sweet guide had no sooner said Mantua than this shade, who seemed all pulled into himself, jumped up from his spot and cried out, 
Okay, let's just stop before we get to his words. This jumped up and pulled into himself and all this. This is very interesting. We saw this soul sitting alone. And as I said, the word used for soul is a little bit affectionate with its diminutive on the back of it in the Florentine. But this word, who seemed all pulled into himself, or this phrase, is really interesting. Tutta in se romita. Uh, if I had to translate it another way, I might say all in himself reclusive. I chose to translate it all pulled into himself. But this is what's interesting. Not only is this soul solitary, as in sitting alone, and sitting when, in fact, all the others who died violent deaths are moving about, not only is this soul sitting alone, but this soul is emotionally alone. Tutta in se romita, all pulled into himself, uh, to all to himself reclusive. There is an emotional standoffishness here as well as a physical standoffishness here. And I find that to be particularly important given who this is. The soul identifies himself. Oh, Mantuan, I am Sordello from your own city. And they embraced each other. Let's talk about who this figure Sordello is. He is, as you know from our read-through of Cantos 6 through 8, Dante's second guide in comedy. He helps Virgil and the pilgrim Dante ahead into the Valley of the Kings. He's not a grand guide. Nonetheless, he is a minor guide. And this is the first time we actually know that there will be more guides than just Virgil, and we assume Beatrice. I read an article recently that made the claim that the beasts on the mountain in Inferno 1 and Garion all should be counted as Dante's guides. I don't think so. Garion is just a vehicle. He's a train to get them down into the Malabolgia. The beasts on the hill, those aren't guides. Those are blocking figures. Do they, in fact, guide the pilgrim from off that early hill and back down to the dark wood where he meets Virgil? Yes. But I don't think we can call that a willful guide the way we can call Sordello a willful guide. So let's just talk for a second about who this important figure is. Sordello is one of the most distinguished of the troubadour poets. He was born in Italy, not so far from Mantua. He's not actually from Mantova. He was born about 10 miles or 16 kilometers out of Mantova in Goito. But although he was born there in the troubadour fashion, he chose to write the poetry that we have still from him in Provençal. He is late for a troubadour poet. He's born about 1200 common era, and the troubadours are at their prime in 1150, 1160. Chrétien de Troyes is starting to write the Arthurian romances up north in Champagne around 1170. Their heyday is early to mid 1100s. So Sordello is born late in this tradition, but he nonetheless picks up this tradition. And one of the poems that we have that remains from his work is a sad lament about 
about the destruction of various kingdoms, about the fall of various rulers. So we know he was connected to courts. In fact, what we know is that Sordello had a rather wandering or peripatetic life from court to court to court. Sordello is deeply connected to other characters in comedy. For example, in about 1220 Common Era, Sordello was a resident of the court of Count Ricciardo di San Bonifazio. This count was of Verona, and he had married in around 1220, around that time, a woman named Cunizza, who is the daughter of Ezzelino II da Romano. One of the things that's interesting here is that Cunizza lies ahead of us in Paradiso. On or about somewhere in the mid-1220s, Sordello is apparently roped into a plot by Cunizza's brother, Ezzelino III, who we saw amongst the violent in Inferno 12. He's roped into a plot by this Ezzelino III, and he abducts Cunizza, Sordello does, and he takes her to Ezzelino's court. Later, he forms an alliance with Kunitsa. He probably falls in love with her and probably sleeps with her. And then suddenly Ezzelino III is very resentful. And that resentment causes Sordello to run for Provence. He takes refuge there in Provence. And he stays in Provence at the court of Count Raymond Beranger IV. Raymond Beranger IV we will meet in Paradiso as well. And we should also note that Raymond Beranger IV is a fellow poet. There he became acquainted with Raymond Beranger's steward, uh, his major domo, Romieu de Villeneuve. Romieu de Villeneuve is also ahead of us in Paradiso. These are just such interesting ties to all of comedy. These figures that surround Sordello are everywhere. After Raymond's death, Sordello remained for many years in Provence in the court of his son-in-law, Charles of Anjou. And in fact, Charles of Anjou lies just ahead of us in Purgatorio. Charles of Anjou, we know about his conquests of the Italian peninsula. We've already talked about this in previous episodes. And the the last thing we know about Sordello is he must have followed Charles of Anjou into the Italian peninsula because in about 1269 Common Era, Charles of Anjou grants Sordello and his heirs several castles in the Abruzzi. So he's very connected to courts, to court figures. But more than that, this Sordello figure is very connected with comedy. People from his life are placed all the way back in Inferno and way ahead of us in Paradiso and just ahead of us in Purgatorio. He sort of spans comedy. And that we meet, this late troubadour poet here, is fascinating. And here's the second thing, and we'll play much more with this ahead. This troubadour poet seems very intent on forming a relationship with Virgil, not Dante. Remember in the violent death 
souls. Virgil seems to say, oh, this guy's alive. And then they don't pay any attention to Virgil and they latch on to Dante the Pilgrim and talk to him. This is the opposite. This guy will want to be connected deeply to Virgil ahead. Dante began his career partly as a troubadour-style poet or a poet who was practicing poetry in the troubadour style. And what is the troubadour style? It's about Fenimore. Fenimore is the ennobling love. It is the love that brings you to a higher state of consciousness. It is generally considered the love outside of marriage that that brings you to a higher state of consciousness. And certainly Dante's relationship with Beatrice reflects the troubadour tradition of fan amour. And yet when we meet this troubadour poet in purgatory, he is much more interested in Virgil than he is in this former troubadour poet Dante. Of course, one of the reasons we'd have to say that Dante is not recognized by Sordello is Dante is not casting a shadow. If the sun is behind the mountain at this point, the pilgrim is no longer casting a shadow and is so no longer recognized as a living person. A little problematic that. I mean, it does seem like the souls are less substantial than Dante in his body, but we'd have to say that's the logic of how the passage is working out. Yet, even so, Sordello is always going to be much more interested in Virgil. All fascinating and all to be discussed in what's ahead of us. But before we get there, let's read this whole narrative scape of Canto 6 one more time, straight through, starting at line 1 and coming out here to the back at line 75. When a game of dice is finished, the one who lost is left behind all miserable, repeating every turn of the game and getting schooled by his sorrow. Meanwhile, the others set off with the guy who won. This guy goes in front, another grabs him from behind, yet another beside him tries to get his attention. The winner doesn't stop. He does listen to this one and that. Those to whom he extends his hand don't press so close anymore, so he has some defense against the crowd. That's how I was in that pressing throng, turning my face first to this one, then to another, all to make my promises and thus to be free of them. Among them was the Arentine who met his death at the hands of the fierce Gino di Taco, and the other who drowned as he raced away from the chase. And with his hand stretched out in a plea was Frederico Novello, as well as the guy from Pisa who made the good Marzucco appear quite strong. I saw Count Orso, as well as that soul divided from his body because of spite and envy, as he said, and not because of any crime he'd committed. I mean Pierre de la Brosse, and I pray she takes care of that lady of Brabant while she's still over there among the living so that she doesn't find herself in a much worse flock. The moment I got free from that lot of shades who only prayed that others might pray for them so that they could make quick progress to their sanctified state, I began by saying, It appears to me you expressly denied, O oh my light, in a certain text, that prayers might bend the decrees of heaven. Yet these people 
pray only for that. Will their hopes then prove vain, or are your words not fully clear to me? And Virgil said to me, My writing's straightforward, yet their hopes are not false, if you look at the case with a cleansed mind. That is to say, the height of justice is not brought low if the fire of love fulfills in an instant what those who are placed here must satisfy. In the textual spot where I made this point, human faults could not be rectified by praying because those prayers were disconnected from God. In truth, don't bother yourself with such questions until she speaks to you. She, a light between the truth and your intellect. I'm not sure you get it. I'm talking about Beatrice. You'll see her up top, way up on the summit of this mountain, smiling and happy. And I replied, my liege, let's go a little faster, because I'm not as worn out as I was before. Look, the hill is now casting a shadow. We're going to keep going for the rest of this day, he responded, as far as we're now able to go. But the facts aren't in the form you think you know. Before you're finally up top, you'll see again the one that's hidden by this slope, whose rays you don't interrupt at the moment. But look at that soul over there, sitting all alone, with his gaze turned toward us. That one will tell us about the quickest route. We came up to him. Oh, Lombard soul, how you bore yourself so upright and disdainful. In your eyes I could see such honor and caution. That one didn't speak a word to us, but let us approach, simply watching us like a lion in its crouch. In any event, Virgil stepped up to him, begging that he tell us the best way up to this request. He didn't utter a word. Instead, he asked about our country and what life we'd had over there. My sweet guide had no sooner said Mantua than that shade, who seemed all pulled into himself, jumped up from his spot and cried out, Oh, Mantuan, I am Sordello from your own city. And they embraced each other. We've come to the midpoint of Canto Six of Purgatorio. We're about to pass out of the narrative section and into the invective, the part of the canto that I have always disliked the most and the part that has caused me always to dislike Canto Six. I'm going to work on that right in front of you during the course of this podcast and learn how better to appreciate this canto. You know all the things you have to do to support this podcast. I super appreciate all of that, and I will see you soon on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.